from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 37 through 40, to a shorter passage this morning we'll be looking at. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 37. Here is God's word. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text of scripture and the hope it gives to us. We thank you, Lord, for your healing power that was evident in so many different occasions. And we thank you, Lord, for this picture to us of restoration, of what you can do not only in our bodies but in our souls. And I pray this morning as we look at it that you would bless the words that I speak, that you would speak to your congregation, Lord, that they would be edified, that they would be exhorted, and that they would be comforted. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I'm now returning to where I left off before I went on my long extended vacation. And the last time that I preached here, before I left on vacation, we looked at the story of the transfiguration of Christ on the mount. And now we are looking forward as Jesus and the disciples make their way, their way down the mount to the valley below. And so we have this pretty short text of this incident that takes place immediately upon them getting there. But yet there's a lot of things to look at in these six verses. Now we'll look beginning at verses 37 through 39. And if you're at all familiar with this story, especially it has it's found in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, you know that Luke actually omits quite a material, quite a bit of the material that the other gospel writers give us in this story. Luke tells us nothing about the conversation that went on between Jesus and the disciples on their way down the mountain. And there we have the instruction of Jesus in the other Gospels that the disciples should not speak to anybody about the transfiguration until after he had risen from the dead. We also, uh, Luke also omits the whole discussion about whether Elijah should first come and what that meant and Jesus' answer uh, to that. And it's interesting that Mark, who gives to us the shortest Gospel by far, gives the longest account of the story. Luke tells this story in six verses, Matthew tells it in eight verses, but Mark actually gives us 16 verses to tell this particular story. So the question arises, why does Luke omit the material that the other gospel writers give us? 
I don't know that we can say positively, outside of, of course, the inspiration of the Spirit, which we would all say, but one thing that has been suggested is that this way we can have kind of a compare and contrast between the story of the Transfiguration, which Luke gives immediately before, and the story down on the valley that happens with the boy with the Spirit that Jesus takes care of. Luke highlights this by saying, on the next day when they had come from the mountain. So Luke is putting this in contrast and comparison. And to highlight this, some of the commentaries had their comments on the transfiguration as Christ's glory above. And then they had their comments on what happens here in this text as Christ's glory below. So we see those two things that are happening. And there is something here in the text that I think leads to this. In verse 43, it says, after the healing of this demonized boy, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now that word translated majesty in your Bibles, unless you have a different translation, is actually the Greek word there is only found two other places in the New Testament. And one of the times, it relates to a pagan deity in Acts chapter 19. But the two times that it relates to God, the other one, outside of the one here, is Peter in 2 Peter 1.16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the two places this word is found in relationship to God is one, the transfiguration, two, what happens when Jesus comes down off the mount of transfiguration. I find that to be a little interesting. And uh, I.H. Marshall says, what was visible only to the chosen three on the mountain is here visible to a greater number. There's certainly interesting contrast in the story. Uh, John MacArthur lists several. He says one event happened on a mountain, the other in a valley. In the mountain we see Christ's glory. In the valley we see Satan's violence. We see two sons, one who is God-possessed on the mountain, one who is Satan-possessed in the valley. In the one, the son, in the one son, the father is well-pleased. In the other son, the father was tortured by the condition. And there's other things as well. Dr. James Boyce, in his commentary, not on Luke, but on Matthew, he tells this story. He says, in 1517, the same year in which Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Raphael Sanzio began a painting of Christ's transfiguration. When he died in 1520 at the age of 37, the painting was not finished. But Raphael had completed it enough for us to understand it. He showed Jesus on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. Everything is bathed with light. But in the same painting at the bottom, Raphael shows the other nine disciples trying to cast a demon out of the epileptic boy and failing miserably. It's a way of saying that mountaintop experiences coexist with valleys, and only by the power of the Son of God can we have victory in our life. And I think that's a good contrast. So as Jesus comes down in verse 37, we're told there's a loud, large crowd of people that are waiting for him. And in verse 38, we hear the agonizing cry of the Father to our Lord. And he says to Jesus, look at my son. Which means not for Jesus just to go, okay, I see him. But he's asking for Christ to actually do something. And here's another interesting word in the Greek. The word for look at. 
And like our last word, it's only found three times in the New Testament. It is a compound word. There's a simple Greek word which means to look or to see, which is blepo. But sometimes in the Greek you add, just like we do in English, you add a beginning to the word to emphasize it or make it stronger. So this is actually the word epiblepo, which uh, means uh, a little stronger than just looking. The two times, this word out of the three, two of the times it's found in a prayer to God. One is found here, where the father says, look upon my son. The other is a famous one that you're familiar with, where Mary in the Magnificat says that she says to look on, she asks God to look on the humble estate of God's servant. So those are the two places we find that in a prayer. So the father wanted Jesus to look upon his son with favor, and Mary wants God the father to look upon her with favor. And then Luke has the father saying, which only Luke brings out, for he is my only son. It is Luke the physician that mentions this fact. When Jesus touches the dead child of Jairus, it's Luke that tells us, for he had, for she was his only daughter. When Jesus sees the widow of Nain coming in the funeral procession for her dead son, it is Luke who tells us that this is the only son of his mother. So here we have the third mention in the Gospel of Luke of an only child. And uh, as I mentioned, of course, not only is this the only child of the Father, but Jesus himself is the only begotten Son of the Father. In verse 39, we have the Father's description of what is wrong with the Son. Now, it's very common, and I, I even you noticed, I read it in one of the commentaries that I uh, quoted from, to say that the boy is epileptic. And from the symptoms that he exhibits, that's certainly a very strong possibility. Matthew is the father describing him that says he has seizures and he suffers terribly. But all three synoptic gospel accounts makes it also clear that the boy has a spirit, an evil spirit or a demon. In Mark, it's described as a spirit. Later, Mark calls it a foul spirit and Jesus will call it a deaf and dumb spirit. Matthew describes the boy as being a lunatic, but then he says that Jesus rebuked the demon. Luke describes it as both a spirit and a demon. And later the disciples will ask the question to Jesus, why could we not cast him out? Which indicates as well that there was a spirit and a demon that is involved. Now the condition is different in various ways as described. Matthew says the boy has seizures, and because of that sometimes he falls into the water, sometimes into the fire. Mark describes it more fully, saying the boy is mute and that he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Luke says it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. What we want to be careful here, as this other places as well, that often people with certain kinds of impediments or diseases are spoken of in the Bible as having an evil spirit or a demon. We do not gather from that that everyone in our life or even in the Bible that had those particular conditions had them as a result of a demon. They have them as a result of Satan's work who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but we do not say they necessarily have a demon 
and, and uh, so we need to be careful of that because some things in the Bible, the same condition is spoken of as a demon, and other places the condition is a demon is not mentioned at all. So we need to be careful in regards to that. But the effects is very interesting because what it says is that the demon makes him fall, not just fall, but fall into water and fire. What is that about? He's trying to kill him. And that's what Jesus said. That's what we find out. That, that, G, that the, the thief comes but to kill and to steal and to destroy. And so that's what he's trying to do. Peter says in Acts that Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy or to destroy the destroyer, which is what he did, by the way. Well, then let's look at verses 40 to 42. In verse 40, we're told something all the gospel writers tell us. The man had brought the boy to the disciples, the nine disciples of Jesus that were left below, and they were not able to cast the spirit out. And uh, now there's more to look at in this, but let me mention just one thing here. We might forget this, but if you go back a little ways, you'll find that right before this, the disciples had just come back from a preaching tour where they cast out demons and healed the sick. And they had done that successfully, and they were excited about that. And in verse 1 of this chapter, we see Jesus sending them out to do that. And it says, He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Well, what happened to that power that those nine disciples had when they went forth? Did they just lose it all of a sudden? Or was this demon stronger than any other demon that they had ever encountered? In verse 41... We'll come back to that in a second. But in verse 41, Jesus makes a very strong statement. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now that's a statement that has its roots in the Old Testament and the condition of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 5, it says of them, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Later, same chapter, verse 20, And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. So this statement of Jesus is rooted in the Old Testament account of Israel in the wilderness. But Jesus speaks it, but who is he talking about? When he says it, O faithless and perverse generation, who is he speaking of? There's actually several answers that people give to that question. Some think he's speaking directly of the boy's father. Others think he's directing at the nine disciples who were not able to cast the spirit out. Others think Jesus is including the other three, and so he's directing it at all 12 of the disciples. Others say, no, he's directing it at the crowd that had gathered. Others say, all of the above. So you have to choose, I guess, which you think it is. There is one other possibility, by the way, that we find from the Gospel of Mark. Mark tells us there were scribes that were present, and so it's possible that Jesus was speaking of them. Some say, well, it can't be the Father, because in the one story, uh, in the one Gospel account in Mark, it says, uh, Jesus said, if you believe, and the Father responds, I believe, help thou my unbelief. So, they say, well, Jesus can't be speaking to the Father because at least he believed. But, of course, he did have some unbelief as well. 
Some like Philip Ryken would say you have to at least include the nine disciples because later Jesus tells them that they couldn't cast the demon out because of their unbelief. But more important than all of that is we have to include ourselves in this. And I will come back to that a little later. The French commentator Frederick Godet believes this response of Jesus may have been at least in part to his night of prayer and communion on the mount. Godet says he feels himself a stranger in the midst of unbelief. The holy enjoyment of the night before, as it were, made him homesick. In verse 42, as the father brings the boy to Jesus, we're told that the spirit threw him. It's a word that is used in Greek of wrestlers throwing their opponent violently to the ground. It is a very violent act. But the statement in verse 42 says, But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Sometimes, as I did this last week, I drive my car into a garage. I give them my keys and I ask them to open the hood of my car and to fix whatever it is that's wrong with the car. And that's what they do. They open it up, they look at it, they fix it, and they hand me back the keys and I go along with my car. It's a very mundane illustration, but that's what Jesus does. He takes the boy who's not working normally and fixes him and gives him back to his father. It's an interesting study. I don't have time to go into it all, but if you look at what Jesus does to several of the healings, how he not only heals the person, but does something extra. For example, the dead girl, remember when he raises Jairus' daughter, he didn't just raise, he says, now give her something to eat. Here he restores the child to the father. There's other things that you could look at in regards to that. But, and I also want to say here, and I'll come back to this as well, I believe that when Jesus fixed the boy, he stayed fixed. Okay? My car doesn't stay fixed. I wish it did. But Jesus, when Jesus fixes something, I believe it stays fixed. Well, let me make applications this morning. One thing we learn from this story is just because God works in a particular way or a certain way at times in our lives, we can't rely on the fact that that way is always going to work. The disciples had had success casting out demons, as I mentioned, on their preaching tour, so they thought they knew how to do it, and they could do it again. Reminds me, as I think of that, of Samson, who told Delilah certain things that would make him weak and has other men and, and he said it and then he'd get up and he'd rip the bands apart and then he'd tell, him, tell her another lie. But the last time he says to himself, I will arise has at other times, but that time it doesn't work. We can't always do things like we did at other times. Jesus is always doing things differently, isn't he? Sometimes he's sticking his finger into people's ears. Sometimes he's spitting on the ground and making mud. Sometimes he's laying hands on them. Sometimes he's just crying out. Sometimes he just speaks the word. And sometimes he doesn't even go near someone. And they're healed at a distance. Which shows us the power was never in the method. You remember the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. They said, if Paul can do it, we can do it. And they went out to do what Paul did. And they said, I adjure thee in the name of the Paul, the name of Jesus that Paul uses uh, to, get, uh, to come out of them. But it doesn't work so well. The result is they all got beat up uh, by that one person. 
I note that there are healing evangelists through the years that have done this and sent out. I've, I've seen it when I've been at certain people's homes and they've gotten some uh, letter from this evangelist and there's a little cloth in there and he says, you know, just put this cloth on your body and then send it back with me with an offering and, and you will be healed. And they try to mimic the account of Peter, for example, or excuse me, of Paul in, in uh, Acts 19 where they took the handkerchiefs. But it's never the method. It's not the method. It's being with Jesus that matters. In Mark's account of the story, the answer to Jesus' reply, or to answer to their question that Jesus replied is, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Do you think they prayed? Do you think when they went to the demon, do you think they prayed, said, Lord, help us here? I think they did. But you see, Jesus isn't just saying it comes by prayer. He's saying it comes by prayer. Jesus had spent the entire night in prayer on the Mount of Transfiguration, as one of the Gospel writers tells us. And if all we try to do is copy other people, which we're so prone to do, we all want to read the latest how-to book, don't we? And, oh, how to grow your church. Well, we need to know that. Let's get that book and see how to do it. And, and, and let's do this, how to do this, and how to do that. And everybody's got a how-to. But their methods don't always work, do they? And we try to copy them and we find ourselves in dismal failure. It's better for us to seek God and figure out what God wants us to do in our particular situation. And so we think, well, it's just easier to read a book than to spend the night in prayer, which it is. But it's not necessarily the right way. Secondly, let's, let's take cheer from the failure of the disciples. Sometimes we do our best in a situation. We try our hardest. We really try. We really want this thing to work. But nothing seems to work. We get down and think, well, there's, there's nothing we can do. Maybe it's one of our children. We're praying for them. We've, we've taught them. They've grown up in our household. They've been to church. They know what church is. They know what is required of them. But it seems whatever, it doesn't work. It seems like we failed in that kind of thing that we've done. One commentator says, in one sense, we learn more from the story of the failure of the disciples than we do in the transfiguration. He said, we learn more from Paul's thorn in the flesh than is being carried away into the third heaven because we all understand a thorn in the flesh, but we don't necessarily understand going into the third heaven, do we? So if we fail, let's realize we're in good company. Others have failed before us. As I prepared this sermon, I was looking at the statement, O faithless and twisted generation. In the message, I told you that there were various ways and views on who it was that Jesus was referring to in that statement. But as I prepared that message and I read it, I knew he's talking about me. That's immediately what struck me as I read that text. That's me. That's who you're talking about. Now, I'm not here to put anybody under condemnation. I don't believe that's my job. When I was new in the ministry, I confessed that I would often address individuals in my audience in the guise of making a general statement. But I knew who I I was directing my comment for, that person who bothered me that week, and easy way to get back from the pulpit. And uh, I have to confess, I've probably done it in later years as well, but I do try to avoid that. And this stems back, why I've tried to avoid it, stems back to something I heard many, many years ago from a pastor. 
And he said this, and I think he's right. He said, if you preach and you get up and talk about people always being critical, there'll be some little old widow lady in your congregation that's never been critical except maybe one time in her life and she's all convicted because of what you said and that one time she did it and then you got that person who's always critical about everything and it goes right over their head and they don't do it so it doesn't do any good anyway Um, and and so I can use that illustration because nobody has been critical to me here at least not to my face and if you do it outside it to my face that's great have at it but thank you for not doing it to my face but um, any time how many times have we been in the service and we've heard a message and we think, oh man, I wish so-and-so was here because they really need that message. Or we look over across the aisle and say, oh, I hope they're getting this. I hope they're getting this because that's right for them. And, and, and they're doing that. But I hope when you hear this statement of Jesus, your thought is, that's me. I'm the faithless one. I'm the one who doesn't believe. I'm not talking about how you respond to my words, but the words of the Lord. Because the words of the Lord are addressed to his disciples' question. Why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus said, because of your little faith. So I'm guessing if Jesus, speaking to nine men who had just returned from a successful preaching tour where they had healed many, where they had seen many converted, where they had seen many demons cast out, And he addresses them and says, because of your little faith, I'm guessing that if he could address that to them, he can address it to us as well. The interesting thing is, in the other gospel, right after Jesus blames them for their little faith, he says this, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So here's the conversation. Lord, why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus said, because you have little faith. But if you have little faith, you can say to the mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. In other words, you couldn't do it because you have little faith, but because you have little faith, you can move a mountain. In the other gospel, Jesus said, as I mentioned, that this kind only comes forth by prayer. As I said, I think the disciples prayed. But Jesus, as I said, spent the night in prayer that's different than just saying Lord help us to cast out this demon remember when Jesus was praying the night before his arrest or the night of his arrest he was in the garden and he took his three disciples closest to him Peter, James and John with him as he did up the Mount of Transfiguration and as he put them in their particular place before he moved on he said to them that they ought to pray He says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. In other words, hey guys, don't forget the prayer I taught you to pray. Lead us not into temptation. And immediately, what did they do? They fell asleep. An hour later, Jesus comes back and finds them sleeping. And again, he says, why are you sleeping? You need to be praying. And again, he leaves them. Jesus prays three hours that night and the disciples slept. And he says, finally sleep on now and take your rest. I think there were a lot of people that heard Jesus that day that walked away thinking, well, those words weren't for me. There's an old song. Some of you probably know. We don't really sing it in our services. But it says, it's me 
It's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Years ago, there was a man in my church who was upset with me because we had committed the grave sin of having a meal in the church building. He believed that was very sinful. And so I was talking to him about why I didn't think it was sinful to use the church building for a meal. I asked him a question about, does God ever convict you? And he said, I never get convicted of anything anymore. And I said, man, you're in the worst condition you can possibly be in. I believe it's my commission in this sermon, as I mentioned, to edify, exhort, and comfort. But when I exhort you in an application like this, I want you to know the exhortation has first come to my heart. I'm not saying I've responded exactly how I should, but it first comes to me. I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's our children we think we failed with. Why aren't they serving the Lord like we did, like we taught them to? What's wrong? Well, we learned something here that when we have children, it seems like we can't do anything with. Do what the Father did. Just bring them to Jesus and say, Lord, I don't know what to do anymore. They're yours. This can be a word to parents or Sunday school teachers or anybody that has a burden for children or even adults. Sometimes, like I say, it seems no matter what we do, we're like the nine disciples. We're trying everything and nothing's working. And we're failing. So let us bring them to the Lord in prayer. Because he's our only case. He's, he's our only hope. In the three cases I mentioned in Luke of an only child, the actions of Jesus always end up in bringing, restoring the relationship of the parent and the child. Here he gives the boy back to the father. In the widow of, Nun, of Nain's case, he, the, the boy is restored to the mother. In Jairus' daughter, he gives them back to the parents and says, give them to eat. In all the cases, Jesus restored the child to the parents. Malachi 4.6 may refer to John the Baptist, but I think also more likely to Christ. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Now, I'm not telling you this is always going to work because God is sovereign. But I'm telling you that that's what we need to do is leave them with Christ and say, Lord, he's yours. She's yours. I told you in the message that when I thought Jesus healed this boy, he stayed healed. I believe he did. I don't think he went home and it all immediately started happening again. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. I believe if a person becomes a new creation, he can't become an old creation again. I believe when God grants to us eternal life, I believe it is eternal life. I don't believe God knows any such thing as temporary life. In several scriptures in the Bible... Jesus talks about eternal life. People say, oh yeah, I'm looking forward to eternal life when I get to heaven. But the Bible says it differently. In John 3.36 it says, whoever believes in the Son has 
eternal life. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John six forty seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John six fifty four. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Did you hear those scriptures? It's not something we lose. Eternal life. It's like we're going to get to heaven and we're going to be there like ten years, and the Lord said, "Well, you're not cutting it," and kick us off. It's not going to happen. Eternal life is given to us when we believe, and God never takes it back. We are fixed, and we will stay fixed because of God's providence and God's promises. Eternal life is eternal life, exactly what it means. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. If you are ordained to eternal life, you will believe. And if you believe, you have eternal life. And you will never perish. And finally, let me notice that Jesus comes down from the mountain. I mentioned in a previous sermon that if Jesus and the disciples had stayed on the mountain, there was a boy who would have never been healed and had his demon cast out of him. But because Jesus came down from the majesty on high, he was able to meet the boy's needs. And this brings us to the fact that there was a greater coming down of Jesus, wasn't there? We deal with this in our, have been dealing with this in our Wednesday morning Bible study in Philippians. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came down from heaven as he came down from the mountain. He came down from the glory into a place of need and desperation to people that were desperately needing new life. Jesus came down. He could have stayed, but he didn't. He came down for us because had he never left heaven, there would be no salvation. There would be nothing for us to cling to, nothing for us to hope in because there is absolutely no other name given under heaven whereby men might be saved. And so we can be thankful that our God came down, that he could give to us eternal life and we have that life and that life will remain with us throughout eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you came down into this world. And Lord, we thank you that because of that, and because you came down into our world and died for us on the cross, because you gave yourself for us, your blood becomes the means of our salvation. And if we can just trust in you and believe in you and hear the gospel call, that whosoever believes in me has everlasting life, that Lord, that life is there for us. And I pray, God, if there's some here today who do not know and do not have that life, that they would cry out to you in faith, believing, and receive this morning that life which will remain forever and ever. And for those of us who have done that, Lord, may we find faith to believe this and know, God, that we are kept by your power, being reserved until the last day when the sons of God will be manifest. 
We thank you for it. Thank you for what you've did to, done to this young boy in this story. We thank you, Lord, that you've done similar things to us. And we give you praise and help us to have faith that you may do these things in others. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.